Okay, turn to Luke chapter 9 in your Bibles. We're going to look at a section of Luke 9 and then a section of Luke 14. As I already said in my prayer, a number of times each year we get the privilege as a church of doing baptisms. It's a privilege as a church of seeing the evidence of God's grace, the evidence of changed hearts in this picture of death and resurrection. So today, three people will be baptized in each of the services. We had three in the first service, three in this service as well. Remember, baptism is a public testimony. It's to the church and to the world that those who are being baptized are overtly and forever identifying themselves with Jesus and his gospel. We'll get to Luke 9 and Luke 14 in just a bit, but let me start off with uh, well, kind of a, an odd question. What does it cost to be baptized? What does it cost to be baptized here? You say, are you kidding? It's, you charge? You're that desperate for money? That's a new one. I haven't heard of that. Charging for baptism? No, no, no. Of course, in a sense, there's no charge for baptism. There's no cost to baptism. And in a sense, it costs everything. It's also true of the gospel. We could give the same answer of what does the gospel cost? And one side of the coin is it costs absolutely nothing. You come with nothing in your hands to bring, only to the cross to cling I mean, you better come with nothing or you don't come at all. It's free. It's completely free. Isaiah 55, without money and without price is how you come. The other side of the coin, though, is that the gospel costs you everything. What does it cost to become a Christian? Nothing. Just come. That's the whole point of the cross. He did it. You just come. And yet, the cross tells us something else, responsibility. Now, you might say, what do you mean, this whole, yes, it costs something, no, it doesn't cost anything? Let me see if I can illustrate it first, so we have this tucked away as we start to think about this. I think it's like being a child in a loving yet disciplined home. My kids are my kids, and I love them not because of their performance, but because of their position, because of just the fact that they're my kids, they're in my home, they're they're mine. I don't love them because they always take out the garbage, because they don't. Or always clean up the dog poop, they don't. My love isn't dependent on their performance, it's based on their position, it's based on the fact that they're mine. And yet, at least in our home, there's some responsibilities for the Kelly kids because they're in the family, because they're in the house, because we mutually care for the function of our home, the operation of the day-to-day business of our home. Spurgeon illustrated it like this. He said, imagine a blind man who asks Jesus to heal him. Jesus won't take any money from this blind man to heal him. The blind man might say, well, I have, you know, 50 cents. 
Or I have $2 or I have $5. It doesn't matter how much he has. Jesus won't heal him because he's paying Jesus money. In fact, Jesus would probably, if we can imagine this, would probably stop the, the, the scenario right there and say, wait a minute, hold on, let's get this straight. I don't heal for, for money. I don't need money. And you've misunderstood my grace. So Jesus doesn't heal the man because he gives something to Jesus. It's free. And yet once healed, Spurgeon says, the once blind man, now with sight, can no longer be allowed to sit in the street corner and beg all day as if he were still blind, but now he's called upon to do the responsibilities of one who has sight. He got new eyes because of Jesus' grace and power, not anything he did. But now, with new eyes, he has to act like one with eyes. We have been forgiven and made sons and daughters of the Most High. Being his sons and daughters means we function like the Father. We do his business. You see this in Ephesians 2. Where in verse 8 and 9 and 10, you you get both sides of the equation. You get two sides of the coin that we're not saved according to works, but by grace. Yet we're saved. Verse 10 says, we're saved unto good works. Not saved by good works, but saved unto good works. In fact, we're saved, Paul says in verse 10, to be God's poem. His poema is the Greek word. His... His artwork were on display, displaying his glory. That that implies responsibility. So I wonder this, does it feel like there's a cost to your Christianity? Does it feel like there's a cost to your Christianity anymore? If, If so, then how would you illustrate that? What's the word picture you would use to describe the cost of your Christian life, the pain of your Christian life, the suffering of your Christian life, the energy expended in your Christian life. Christianity, my Christian life is like, what's the illustration for you? Like a box of donuts. It's like Sunday in the park, sunshine all day. It's like smashing your hand with a hammer. Oh, no, 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 we're not supposed to say it's hard, are we? Well, yeah, Jesus does. And baptism is one of the ways in which we see that Christianity is death. Baptism is a picture of death and burial and, yes, resurrection. So it's identifying with Christ, specifically identifying with his death and resurrection. But it's also a picture. It's a double picture. It's also a picture of our death and our resurrection. Where the old self was buried and it died there. And there's a new self that's being resurrected, raised up. Listen to it in Romans 6. I know I said Luke 9. We'll get to it. But listen to Romans 6, which talks about baptism in these terms. There Paul asks, after giving a lot about justification, how free it is, and how it's not by works but by grace, he says, what shall we say then? Should we continue in in sin so that grace may increase? No, may it never be. 
How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Baptism goes down into the water and comes up out of the water to picture a burial and a resurrection. You get this. Your Christian life in baptism is pictured in something of a death. Death, it's, it's, it's kind of graphic, isn't it? A burial. Your old self's been buried. And then Jesus has this language in Luke 9 and Luke 14 that's maybe even more shocking, more radical. So look at verse 23 of Luke 9. He was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he's the one who will save it. For what is a man profit if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Here in Luke 9, these verses here, there are six phrases that describe discipleship or coming to Jesus and walking with Jesus, progressing with Jesus. Here are the six phrases. Come after me, verse 23. Deny yourself. Take up your cross daily. A fourth phrase is follow me. In verse 24, there's a fifth phrase. Christianity is like losing your life. It's like throwing your life away, at least from one perspective. In verse 25, there's kind of a reverse, how not to view your Christian life, being ashamed of him. The opposite is what the Christian life is, is proclaiming him, being bold about him. So six phrases. Now look over Luke 14. There's six phrases there that are similar. Some exactly the same. Luke 14, look at verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Or someone who is building a foundation, verse 29. Or in verse 31, what king goes into battle without trying to figure out if he can win? Verse 33, so then none of you who can, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. The six phrases here. Jesus' followers must hate family. Hate mother, father, son, daughter, brother, sister, wife, husband. Hate family. He must hate his own life. 
says at the end of verse 26. He must carry his own cross, verse 27. He must come after Jesus. He must calculate the cost. And he must give up his possessions. Verse 33. Six phrases. You see how tough this stuff is? Jesus' words are shockingly radical. And probably the most shocking is this phrase, take up your cross, in both Luke 9 and in Luke 14. Now, we talk about our cross to bear today. That's a cultural idiom. Except it means nothing of what it did in the first century. Today, if someone says, well, it's just my cross to bear, that's, you know, that's, that's a tough mother-in-law. That's a, I've got a spleen issue. You know, I got a bunion it's just my cross to bear. The doctors don't want to fix my bunion. It's driving me crazy. You know, it's a jerk boss or a jerk neighbor. There are cross to bear. Well, in first century times, there was no thinking about a cross to bear without thinking of execution. And the most violent and painful, horrific execution that's ever been invented. In fact, notice... Notice that when Jesus, in verse chapter, chapter 9, verse 22, notice that he first says that he's going to die. Verse 22, he's going to be killed. And then verse 23 is when he says, and you, if you'll follow after me, you have to take up your own cross. They would have pictured what they've seen so many times, a man actually carrying the top of a cross to his own execution. Jesus says that following him is like the worst form of execution known to man. I've yet to see that on a bumper sticker or a Christian t-shirt. It doesn't sell so well, does it? Jesus is almost trying to dissuade people from coming. Earlier in the chapter, verse 25, you see large crowds were coming out to see him. What does Jesus do? Tickle their ears, tell them how good it's going to be. He says, listen up. If you're going to follow me, you're going to probably be killed. You've got to take up your cross. You have to hate your parents. You have to hate kids. What? I mean, no doubt the disciples were thinking, he's blowing it. No way. I mean, John 6, you have something similar. 5,000 were just fed. Jesus is the most popular guy in town. And then he says, you have to eat my body and drink my blood. What? You know, the disciples are going... No, don't, don't do it. We just got a big group and now look, they're leaving. Yeah, Jesus is scaring them off in a right and good way. Now, we talked about this at our Wednesday Lord's Supper just a few days ago. I told you that the Lord's Supper service message and this message would overlap a, a bit. Um, so let me give a, a little bit of a review for those of you who weren't there. I said at our Lord's Supper service that the cross in the New Testament uh, functions in two different ways, both as a payment and as a path. It, it functions as salvation and as the image of imitation. It's the symbol for life given, eternal life, and it's a symbol for the life we live in Christ, following him. 
It's the tenor of our life. So it's not just that the cross saves, but then, of course, if you, if you have the cross, you have forgiveness, then, of course, obey them. Of course, follow them. The cross is also the image or the symbol of our following him. We don't talk about it in those terms too often, but we should. I mentioned uh, a title of a book, a book by Michael Gorman. The book's title is Cruciformity. What that means is that the Bible talks about us being conformed to the image of the crucified Christ. That God's plan for the disciples of Christ are that they are imprinted with the cross. The form of the cross is on their life. The cross. Don't think gold necklace. Don't think these squiggly crayon things up here on the side. No doubt someone came, did, went to Chili's and did that on a, a little napkin and then, ah, oh, we'll use that as a logo, right? Okay, I'm making fun of our own logo. <laughs> I realize that. But, but the point is this, is we, we think of crosses as neat and cool, maybe even cultural things or something that's very precious to us. We don't think of it as a bloody calling. We don't think of it as something violent and horrific and a symbol of death. So isn't this a neglected aspect of cross language? In this book, Michael Gorman shows that about half of the references in the New Testament to the cross or the cross of Christ, they're using the cross in those instances as a symbol for something about our life and our living, our following Christ, not just coming to Christ. So let's not soften what Jesus is saying in Luke 9, in Luke 14, when he talks about taking up our cross. Now, here's how this conversation usually goes. You read passages like this, and then a Bible teacher tells you, it doesn't really mean that, because um, Jesus doesn't tell us elsewhere to sell everything we have in order to get to heaven. There are other passages that say, you know, Enjoy your stuff. Use your stuff. Give your stuff. If you gave all your stuff away when you became a Christian, then what stuff do you have to give away after you became a Christian? So, yeah, the Bible is telling us that we're all going to have possessions. We'll probably all have homes here in 21st century America, or many of us, most of us. It's not saying that you have to... Go around hating your parents so that you get to go to heaven. But here's how we normally deal with this. We just quickly dismiss it and we remove the force and the shock and the seriousness of these verses. We qualify what Jesus is saying, and I think rightly so. But then we dismiss it. We qualify what he's saying. He doesn't really mean sell your house and give to the poor. Or we theorize it. Maybe we say, hypothetically, if he came to you and asked you to sell your house, then yes, you should sell your house. And his disciples would sell their house if he ever came to you and asked you to sell it. But don't worry, he hasn't done that in thousands of years. Don't worry, he probably won't. So just go ahead and believe. You can can believe now. It's safe. 
Or we contextualize that language and we say, look, that was about the first century and they had a a lot of persecution back then and so Jesus had a message for them. But today here in America, I mean, you don't really suffer. You don't really get persecuted. You're surely not going to die. So it, it can't really mean for us what it meant for them. All those things are kind of true. And yet all of them so watered down what Jesus is saying here that pretty soon it doesn't mean anything and we don't try to apply it at all. We can't do that. So let me give you, with the time we have left, ten ways in which this this language... Remember, six things in chapter 9, six things in chapter 14. Ten things those sayings imply. First, be willing to literally die for him. For many of the first century disciples, that was the reality. Jesus says, they're going to kill me. You take up your cross if you're going to follow me. That literally meant you keep going toward Jerusalem. And Peter, they're going to find out you're one of the guys. You're going to be a marked man. And by Acts chapter 4, you're going to be whipped. And by Acts chapter 7, Stephen's going to be stoned. For many of the first century disciples, it meant be willing to die for Jesus. And it means that for many today in other parts of the world. For, for people in Afghanistan. For people in India. For people in many, many countries. Identifying with Jesus is something close to a death sentence. And it could one day, perhaps in my lifetime, perhaps in my kid's lifetime, it could even here in the West, even here in the good old U.S., become reality. That identifying with the name of Christ means they may lynch you. Do we believe that? Do we believe that? We need to. We need to. Secondly, it means... Die to your wants. Die to your wants. Let his wants be your wants. Jesus said, hate your own life. He said, deny yourself and come after him. Follow after him. That means die to your wants. Or like Paul puts it in Galatians 5, he uses crucify language there about our desires. He says those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Some of my desires need to die. I need to consciously acknowledge the crucifixion of certain desires. In principle, it's been done, right? In principle, we saw it from Romans 6. My flesh has already been crucified with Christ. But in actuality, I need to die daily, as Paul says. Or or like he puts it in Romans 8.13, that we need to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Die to your wants. Third, die to your comforts. I I know comforts aren't all bad. I mean, the, the Bible records Jesus finding rest, getting away from the people and finding rest. If his rest is comfort, then... That comfort can't be bad. But yet you see Jesus going after our comforts here in Luke 9 and Luke 14. And no doubt ease and peace and safety are common idols in our culture, right? 
Not that ease or peace or safety are bad, but we make them into ultimate things and then they're idols. So here's a test. How much of your safety, sense of safety, your peace of mind is rooted in something that's not him? How many things are there in your life that, that if taken away, would, would move a leg out from the chair of your peace of mind? Retirement disappears like that. I mean, I, I say for retirement, I'm only 35, and if my retirement went to zero tomorrow, I would wrestle with worry. Oh, boy. You know, some of you did that when it, it dropped significantly by 50% or so, or even more a couple of years ago. Now, wrestling with worry is one thing, but giving into it, giving into it is acknowledging, at least it should be, it should be us acknowledging that our peace and safety is attached to stuff that isn't God. Die to your comforts. Galatians 6 says, May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Do you, do you go around enough looking at stuff, seeing things in magazines, observing the new gadgets on home and garden television, and thinking, dead to the world, dead to the world, dead to the world. I have to do that. I go into certain stores and I say, love not the things of the world, love not the things of the world. <laughs> Maybe part of the, the battle here is that we don't allow ourselves to be absolutely saturated with an ideal that not only is unbiblical, but isn't realistic. So your home should be perfect and you, know, you should have these things, you should drive that car. Maybe we should just protect our minds a little bit, give us some breathing room from the, the ads which tell us you deserve this comfort, you need this comfort, you, you need this to have safe, safety and peace. Die to your comfort. Fourth, die to your autonomy. I, I think basically we do what we want. I think even with some religious things thrown in there, we, we basically do what we want. You serve, you serve as much as you want. Uh, sometimes I know you think you push the envelope, but probably it's because if you're like me, it's because you can't live with the guilt of not doing it. So you do it. You do what you want. Uh, let's not think that way. Let's instead think that we're not our own. Doing what we want, even when good things are thrown in, is us designing the plan of our lives. Let's be open to what God has for us, even if it's beyond what we want or beyond what seems reasonable in our culture. Fifth, die to your relationships. Coming to Jesus means sacrificing your reputation, at least being prepared to. It means sacrificing the idol of acceptance with others, including moms and dads and daughters and sons and sisters and brothers. When Jesus said you must hate them, hate family members, he uses a word that isn't quite like our word hate. He uses a word in the Greek that's a comparative word. So hate is like a category by itself. Their word for hate was, was something like a lot less love. 
What he means here is that there should be no rivals. Your comfort, your acceptance, your peace should ultimately be in Christ to the Father, not ultimately through mom, through dad, through sister, through brother, through husband, through wife, through daughter, through son. You see, good things, again, can't be ultimate things. It replaces him. That's what Jesus is getting at. He's, he's picking, not on a bad thing. It'd be so easy to say, you must love me more than Ouija boards. We go, okay, good. Those things freak me out. <laughs> but he says, you must love me more than your kids. Oh, boy. Here's the question. Which is better, Jesus or wife? Jesus or kids? Or another way to put the question is, if those are taken away, is he enough for you? If kids go away tomorrow, or kids leave home and get on crack tomorrow, is he enough for you? Not will it be easy, but is he enough for you? Is he the Lord and there is none besides him? Or is he a means of having peaceful relationships? Where the relationships are the God of your world. Jesus won't have it that way. If others turn against you, is Christ your portion? That's what the Psalms say. He's your portion. He's your everything. He's what you need. He's your food. He's your sustenance. Sixth, his stuff means know his suffering. Be acquainted with his suffering. Get to know him through suffering. Did you know that's one way in which you get to know Jesus? Yes, one way is through the Bible. One way is through prayer. Other way is walking in his path, and that's the path of suffering. Philippians 3 said that. We saw it on Wednesday where Paul says, I want to know him. Remember that? Verse 9. And then verse 10 he says, I want to share in his sufferings. I I want to be conformed to his death. I want the imprint of the cross upon my life. I want the cross to be something of the tenor of my heartbeat, my breath. Peter describes this well. 1 Peter chapter 2, he said, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his footsteps. Oh, we all say we want to follow in Jesus' footsteps. The footsteps of homelessness? The footsteps of martyrdom? The footsteps of a whole city being against you? Footsteps of those who follow you your hardest hour not being there. Those footsteps. First Peter 4 says, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. How many of you feel like you're in a fiery ordeal right now? Don't be surprised. It comes upon you for your testing. Don't think it's some strange thing. Oh, we always think that, don't we? What's going on? What's wrong with this? What's, what is wrong in the universe? How come God doesn't see this? It's not strange. He does see it. In fact, to the degree that you share in Christ's sufferings, keep on rejoicing. Suffering shows us what's important. No one says, 
There was this time in my life where I walked with the Lord so closely and we had such sweet fellowship and communion and I, I, I obeyed better than I usually do. I, I remember this season of my life. It's when uh, I was making about 150K a year and things were great at home. The kids were almost perfect. You know, I mean, they got A's and our marriage was superb and I mean, things were just it coasted. It was like it was like you went up a hill in a car, but then you got to the other side and you just went down and you got like 70 miles to the gallon going down this hill. It was just smooth. No one says that. Everyone says instead, I remember this time in my life, it was so hard. But I was so close with the Lord. I was forced into him. I was forced into his word. I was forced into prayer, but it was sweet. And we might say, I'm glad it's done. But we say that often those are the sweetest times. Seventh, suffer for others. Jesus suffered for others and he calls us to follow him in this. Suffer for others. 1 John 3 talks about this, that this is love. He laid down his life for us. So we ought to lay down our lives for others, for the brothers and sisters. John says, whoever has this world's good and sees his brother in need and doesn't meet those needs, you you got stuff, and that brother or sister needs stuff, and you won't meet the need with your stuff, then how is it that you have the love of Christ in your heart? Suffer for others. Suffer, eight, for the mission. Suffer for the mission. Jesus called the disciples at first to come and be fishers of men. That's the mission. And he left them with those words. Each gospel ends with it. Go, do the mission. Go, proclaim, baptize, disciple. Even if you suffer, suffer for the mission. Suffer to fund the mission. Ninth, suffer to know him. Suffer to know him. What do I mean by that? Well, in chapter 9 and in chapter 14, you see that phrase, Come after me. Come after him. Part of that's geographical, right? If you're going to keep following him as he walks through Palestine. Part of it is model. Come after him means do what he does. Be like him. Follow in his footsteps. Part of it means something relational. Something communal. Part of coming after him is something like it says in Psalm 63, my soul follows hard after you. You still following hard after him? Did you come to him and then kind of just sit down? He says, come after me. Keep coming after me. Go looking for him. Paul said in Philippians 3, that I may know him. I want to know him. And for us, I think that means Not going over to Jerusalem and seeing where he was. It means going to the word. That's where his glory is shown, where God has revealed himself. Take pains to see him in the word, to commune with him. Suffer to know him. And lastly, suffer to obey. Suffer to obey. Take up your cross means partly kill your flesh, which means obey him. Deny yourself the momentary, fleeting pleasures of sin. I love the way it's put in Hebrews 12. Listen to this. 
Consider him who's endured such hostility by sinners against himself so you don't grow weary and lose heart. Feel like you're about to grow weary and lose heart? Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. He suffered even when it was undeserved. I like this. Verse 4. You have not yet resisted, resisted sin to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. What's that mean? It means that Jesus fought sin unto death. No one's done that. No one has so resisted sin that they died from it. They, you know, eh, I'm not going to sin. Blew up. No one's done that. But Jesus fought sin unto his death. So he feels like, I can't, I can't quit this anger. I can't forgive. I, I can't love. I can't put that behind me. I can't stop worrying. You have not yet fought that sin and exploded. So keep fighting. Look at Jesus. He hated sin. He fought it for you unto his death. Suffered, obey. Consider the cost. If you're not a Christian... I hope this scares you a little bit because you've heard all kinds. Probably if you've lived here in America for any length of time, you've heard all kinds of much softer sales pitches on Christianity than this one. Don't miss what Jesus says. He says, no king goes into battle without sizing up the other army. No guy starts building without asking himself and his advisors whether he has enough money to build. Don't put your hand to the plow and look back. Christianity is absolutely free and there's a sense in which it will cost you absolutely everything. So part of coming to Christ is seeing him as better than anything. And if you, you see him only as a ticket to heaven, then I'm not sure you've seen him yet. He's so much more. Christian, you need to recalculate. Recalculate the cost. You've forgotten that there were costs, didn't you? I do. I, I do. I so want my home to have the shadow of the cross over it, which means pain, which, which means sacrifice, which means not being popular, not being liked sometimes. I want my kids to see something of the cross in our home. Oh, not, not one we hang on a door. Not one that's a screensaver on the computer. I want my kids to see something of the terror, sobriety, the seriousness, the, the hurt, the, the violence, the power of the cross. I don't want substitutes. I don't know about you. I don't know how to apply all this. I know you want, to, you want a, a preacher to say now, okay, so here's what you do. Sell that thing. Give this much. Do this now. I don't know. I don't know how you apply this. Jesus didn't give us specifics on how to apply it, but some of you might need to consider practical things like we got to get out of debt. We don't have any extra money to do anything radical. Some of you need to quit your 80-hour-a-week job. Some moms need to stay home, take care of their kids, maybe. 
You don't have to. But maybe that's one way in which you'll apply it. Maybe you'll give more. Maybe you'll serve more. Maybe you'll love more. Maybe, maybe recently there was a person or a need that came into your life and you considered for a little bit maybe helping that situation, but then you got realistic and you passed. Maybe you need to go back. Maybe you need to go meet that need. Maybe you just need to think about suffering way differently than you have been. Maybe baptism will help us see this. Baptism is a costly identification with Christ. I know in different cultures it's more costly. But we should still see this as something of a public testimony of identifying with Christ. And Christ often is mocked, not liked, sometimes even hated. Baptism is a vivid picture of where our hope lies in his death and resurrection alone, not in my ability to kill my flesh and sacrifice my goods. And yet, baptism is a picture of death to the old, resurrection of the new. Verse 